You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Welcome to TFM's local watering hole, the 602 Club. I'm your host here, Matthew Rushing, and so excited to be back with my good friend, John Mills, this week. Uh, John, it's great to have you back. Uh, I feel like um, we should get you a really nice guest room. Yes, uh, you should. Wow. I'm not giving you any more than that. I just said, yes, you should. You offered and I accepted. Oh, man. Well, uh, I hope uh, Ruby has gotten you the good stuff tonight because we're going to have an enjoyable time, I think, being able to discuss the brand new Thrawn book that came out last month. And uh, this is uh, part of the Thrawn Ascendancy series. This book is called Greater Good. And so this should be a lot of fun to dive into. Want to say a huge thank you to everybody who's listening. And of course, uh, if you're subscribed to the podcast, make sure you're subscribed because that you will get the show as soon as it drops. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please, please hit us up with a star rating review. Let people know what you think of the show. Uh, We uh, love for more people to continue to find the show. So uh, also, uh, you can check us out on Twitter at the 602 Club. We're on Instagram at 602 Club TFM. So please follow us on both places. You can also find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash track FM. We've got the listeners only discussion group there, the Babel Conference, where you can talk to listeners from all over the world about what's going on the network and the different shows. And, of course, uh, you can find us on Trek.fm, and then there's the contact section where you can send us an email as well. Huge thank you, though, to our associate producers, Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson, Ryan Millette, Daniel Noah. We do appreciate them supporting the network um, through Patreon. Now, this network is different than a lot because there's no ads here. So if you like the fact that we bring you great ad-free content as much as possible, go over to patreon.com slash trekfm. In fact, that's really the only way that the show and the network can continue to grow. So, uh, again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm. So, John, diving into the Ascendancy series, we talked about this in the first one, uh, the first episode that we did on on the uh, first book that came out. But one of the things that has been so much of a joy in this is that, you know, the Chiss is, is a species we're always teased. And finally, Thrawn has really gotten to, uh, I would say, world create with this series and finally give us uh, everything we could possibly want to know about the Chiss. And one of the things that was really fascinating to me is just how much more we learn about the Chiss in the first place in this. And, you know, we heard about the nine ruling families which, you know, are these um, almost Game of Thrones-like characters, uh, families that kind of rule over the Chiss. But this book really expands on that and giving us more detail and the fact that under the nine ruling families, we then have 40 great families. And then there's a section below that as well. So really fleshing out the 
kind of galactic implications of the entire Chiss ascendancy, what it looks like, and um, that the government is, you know, the, the nine ruling families almost feels like more of um somewhat of a executive and legislative branch in in place mm-hmm. and then the the 40 great ruling families also feels like a, almost another like almost like congress to senate or something like that uh, it, this to me i just really appreciated that we are continuing to deepen the chiss ascendancy and 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 really create something i think that is special in star wars in the sense that this may end up being the race we know the absolute most about by the time the series is done yeah i there is uh, i think to your point about the ascendancy it's in a sense it's like this ultimate meritocracy nobody gets elected mm-hmm. but people get chosen so you have this oligarchical structure we also establish here that there are those who will never attain the level of influence and power we we meet the common rancher mm-hmm. And so it's very feudal and it's very mm. uh, while being like it, that. That's the thing is what Zahn deserves credit for is that it's hard to quantify it as a singular thing. Right. You're right that it's like a Game of Thrones sort of thing, but it's also like a legislative and executive branch. But it's also feudal, but it's also a meritocracy, but it's also all of these things. And it's really interesting because it works. It, it it makes sense as he goes through it. You say, oh, well, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Sure. And then if you step back for a second, you, you say, no, that doesn't really, how on earth would this work? But at the same time, what he's setting up, what I think he's really setting up very well, is why the Chiss are unable to expand beyond where they are. The Empire can keep conquering and expanding. The Republic can keep bringing worlds in. The Chiss ascendancy is limited by its own ambitions, if that makes any sense. Everybody they bring in has to become basically a part of the fold. Well, there's only so large you can grow the family before it becomes untenable. And I'm wondering if during this whole ascendancy thing, we're witnessing the point in history where it does become untenable. And Thrawn is that sort of free agent that causes things to start eroding and breaking down. Yeah, that's actually a really good question that I hadn't thought of um, that you bring up. You know, is this because, you know, if I'm remembering correctly, one of the things that Thrawn tells uh, the Republic when he's found on that planet is that he's been exiled, basically. And we get, obviously, that feeling that they're working against Thrawn and everything. And but. You know, you're you're right. Like one of the things that was this whole idea of like you you hit on the idea that the the Chiss ascendancy couldn't grow any bigger, and maybe it doesn't really even want to grow any bigger. They don't seem to have aspirations necessarily outside their borders. They're pretty protective. And one of the things that uh, Jinxus does as uh, a, a an allusion to um, the Chiss ascendancy is he he you know they have that big migratory scene with the birds. And he's kind of pointing out that mm-hmm. these birds, you know, you have the predator birds that are on the outside and the weaker birds on the inside and how this seems to almost be a, a slight metaphor for the Chiss Ascendancy in itself, that it keeps a strong border to keep everything in check inside its borders. Um, and in some ways, the 
you know, you create the protective barrier uh, and you protect the more vulnerable to the benefit of the whole. Uh, and, right. and, and yet, like you said, you, it would be difficult for you to continue that type of structure if you got much bigger um, than what you already are. Right. Well, you, you would have you would have to take into consideration as well that it becomes stability and balance becomes incredibly necessary as a means of survival. And so you could reach in for the metaphor that when um, and I'm going to be. I'm going to preface this by saying I'm going to be struggling with names for this whole thing because they truly yeah. are alien they names. They are very, and it's, yeah. And it's, I remember Haplif and it's uh, Stimkiff, no, whatever, the the female that, that's traveling Oh, yes, with yes, I know who you're talking about, yeah. When she poisons the ground, not to kill all the birds, but to make it less habitable and they all change their pattern. Mm-hmm. And that shows how just the tiniest bit of influence that's unexpected from outside mm-hmm. the ascendancy, if these birds are a metaphor for the ascendancy, one little poison changes the way yes. everything goes. Yes. Absolutely. And that's definitely a big part of the story and the plan that Hapleth has as well. And something we'll talk, I would say, in super detail about because it really is the biggest part of the story. But it's also, I would say, the biggest... Um, thematic element of the book as well too so no i i think this is the thing is that star wars very rarely brings species to life like this you know everything is pretty monochromatic Mm. uh, with species that we see you know um uh we, we definitely you think about like um the Gamorians, right? You don't really think of them as being nuanced in any way. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I, I honestly, I would say the closest nuance that we've gotten for any other race in Star Wars has actually been the Mandalorians. Um, after what we got in the Clone Wars and then what we're getting in the Mandalorian, it's like we're really getting some serious nuance to that species. Otherwise, you know, I guess, you know, the Jedi, of course, there's nuance there. But as it comes to understanding a specific species or and or race in Star Wars, you know, there aren't many where you have this kind of detail. True. But by the same token, in the prequels, there's very much a sense that where we're meeting them is in the public square. And even though it's cut from episode two, there is an effort to show what life was like on Naboo for Padme when she was growing up. And how different it was from the life that Anakin had. And so there is, there are hints of the nuance there. But of course, it's you can't go into as much depth as you do right. in oh, a book sure. series, to your point, for sure. And I think what it is with the Chiss is what's interesting about their structure and about the whole approach to it. I'm pretty sure we hit on this in the, in the first book, too, is we're creating something that is truly living, interesting, and unlike what we've gotten before, and what's super interesting is with the exception of a few terms that we hear, right? This series is exactly what some people have been saying they want out of Star Wars. Sure. We've got no Jedi. We've got no possibility of Jedi here. True. Yeah, really. We've got no, no lightsabers. We've got. You know, we've got acknowledgement of the force, but it's not understood as such. Right. And it touches all of the species here, but they don't 
process it in the same way that the people mm-hmm. do in, in the rest of the galaxy. Absolutely. And so there's a very, very interesting phenomenon here. And I, it really jumped out at me with this book. And I think what made it such a joy to read was I felt like the Chiss belonged in Star Wars, but they're n- it's a completely separate thing. If you strip the Star Wars branding from this, it would be pretty easy sure. to do. Yeah. This is just a really good science fiction story, but it's given just enough of those markers of what's established about what I love before it that I instantly accept yep. it as part of the larger galaxy. I mean, 100%. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things with the gist that we kind of dive a little bit more into and I thought was a really fascinating little side detail that, you know, we have the the Skywalkers and uh, Thallus is talking to um the 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 mid captain um of Thrawn's ship and you know Samacro that's the one yeah, name exactly. I can remember Simacro. and he he's talking about you know that they have a schedule for when to bring skywalkers out of uh the third site you know as they're guiding ships and she says well for Sherry actually it's better if she goes like 10 minutes beyond that time and so it's not on this, you know, schedule, you know, it, it's, it's not, it's not cut and dry. Um, and you know, that there has to be some kind of wiggle room there in the, in the regulations. And they have this great conversation about, do we do what is easy or do we do what is best? And the fact that what is good for some is not always good for everyone because not everybody's the same. Right. And it brings up, I thought really interestingly then He's he's in a subtle, very subtle way discussing the idea of the title, which is greater good. Um, and greater good doesn't necessarily mean the good of all, right? Um, and and so mm-hmm. I really loved that in that small discussion, you are finding um, the one of the larger thematic elements of the entire book because i mean it even implies um what we're kind of seeing with the political struggles of the people seeing thrawn as not being a part of the greater good himself because he doesn't play the game the same way that others in fact he's not even playing a game this is not a game to him right and so i think yeah. what i was really impressed was the way in which zon is able to create these wonderful thematic um, connection points throughout the book in very different and, and, and sometimes I would say surprising ways. Yeah, and I still go back and forth as to whether Thrawn is quote-unquote playing a game or not because he's so intelligent. I really think how many battles have we seen him in through these two books wherein he is feigning ignorance of a situation until the, the key moment. And I still go going forward with this third book that's going to come out. I'm still sitting there saying, okay, I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop to find out Thrawn has been screwing with everybody and he actually gets how the game is played and he's just playing them. He's viewing it as a battle sort of thing because his whole thing is he has a desire to learn the political game. And so I refuse to believe that he hasn't been studying it uh, from his perspective from from the way he would approach things. I could be completely wrong, but I think that speaks to, to the character and the depth that Zahn is really giving him because there were two things. 
that really jump out as well about his character in the context of the ascendancy as a whole. Thrawn is a bad guy. We all love him, but he's a bad guy. Look at what he does to the Bendu. Look at the trouble he causes for our space family and rebels. He's not a good person, but he seems to be a good person in this context in that he's quote unquote, not playing the game. And then you could say, well, maybe he doesn't really learn how to play the game because obviously he gets bested by Tarkin for which project to support the TIE Mm -hmm. Defender or the Death Star. But you could also make the argument that the TIE Defender is off the table because Tarkin, because et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all of that stuff. But also what I was surprised by in this book was how, and this is going to be an overstatement, but how quote unquote little Thrawn was actually in it. He's moving everything, but he almost takes on a, uh, a Sidious type of role. Not to that extent. He's not pulling strings like the Godfather sort of thing, but he has an influence on everything that's happening in this story. And he's not directly involved in a hundred percent of it, but it still touches on him. And I just thought it was a very interesting story structure that probably also spoke to, you know, the greater themes and everything in that Thrawn is not as present in this book as you would expect from a book that has his name on it. Yeah, that's a really, you know, I know that there are some people, uh, a friend of mine is, he gets very disenchanted with Thrawn as a character because Thrawn always wins. And, you know, he hasn't necessarily been a fan of the way in which Thrawn is kind of basically presented more in in the books, it seems like with this series and even, you know, um, the series where he's part of the empire where he he had, there's this struggle of seeing him as a bad guy, right? Because so much of what Mm -hmm. he does is good. But I think one of the most interesting things about Thrawn in general is that I would say his axiom for life is pretty much the Vulcan axiom, which is the, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. And so, Therefore, everything he does seems to fall within that, that he's doing it, he is doing it for the greater good of the ascendancy. And what he sees as the greater good is that everyone, the most, he's utilitarian. He's a utilitarianist. The most utility for the most amount of people is is the best way to go. And, and, and so, therefore, in that very logical flow of thought, uh, and and I would say much more logical thought in general. Um, you know, logic can be used in all sorts of terrible ways. And I think Thrawn is a character mm-hmm. to which we kind of see the um, the limitations of thinking only logically. And I think that is actually a good thing because logic divorced of emotion and care and love and all of those type of things becomes very cold and i think that is that's the thing that makes thrawn a villain in the end is because he is cold and calculating and his his care there is very little care there um and that is villainous because it lacks what we would call quote unquote the human connection right but that what we're talking about is that emotional connection to something beyond just its utility. And Thrawn is all about the utility of things. And I, I think 
to me, that's what makes him such a fascinating character because in and of itself, he's not necessarily a bad person and or character. Um, He's just missing some important characteristics to which allow a person to have an emphasis beyond utility. Sure. I mean, and that's his lack of empathy is why he succeeds all the time to answer Mm -hmm. your your friend that you're making reference to. The reason he always wins is because he doesn't care about other people. I I gleefully concede that point. I I just I, I I say it in a a night like I actually mean it as a compliment that I'm still not trusting Thrawn completely not to get what's going on here and not be not be playing the the political game just very slyly and putting the pieces in place sort of thing that's intended as a compliment because oh yeah as as much time as I have spent with Thrawn by this point in the books I still don't trust him and that I think also speaks to the underlying fact of him in that I can sit here and say, well, you know, it doesn't really approach him like he's a bad guy. Well, that's true in this context, but that's the problem is that the ascendancy is actually something that shouldn't be defended as strongly as Thrawn winds up defending it. He's defending a bad thing because he's, missing that empathy that other yeah. people have. Yeah. That's I'm, and that's why he can just he he's more of a mercenary honestly mm. in that he is working to an end where he doesn't care what the overall goals of the mm-hmm. ascendancy are. The ascendancy is trying to uh you know basically eat itself like uh, not eat itself but like it, it's just one of those things where it's it's the ascendancy is not a good thing. Yeah. It's a caste system. It's a feudal mm-hmm. system. It's, yep. I, I mean, in all honesty, going back to what we were talking about, where you can't quite quantify it or qualify it. I mean, and I threw the word meritocracy out there. It's actually a false meritocracy yeah. because people are advancing other people for their own mm-hmm. ends to manipulate yes. them yep. versus other people. So it's not a meritocracy. Yeah. In fact, I've now talked myself out well, of it. And, and I will say too, I, okay, I think it's a great kind of time to tie it jump into this whole idea of like um i, I you know wagging the dog and and Thurifan, um who is the head of the myth family you know wants to get rid of thrawn why is that because thrawn like we were talking about he does not play the game the way that other chiss play the game and understand the political structure right and because he's not willing to play by their rules he's a threat then to them and and right. looking bad on their family. And so therefore I thought it was kind of fascinating the way in which they almost <laughs> they almost play with this idea um and it was very, you know, uh topical of, of like using rumors and hearsay basically on the Twitter sphere of of uh of the Chiss ascendancy mm. to to get Thrawn out of the way and have him go to ho- hopefully chase ghosts um so that uh he could hopefully fail, you know, like they're just praying he fails out there. Uh, and he brings, you know, um, a bad name on himself and that they can get rid of this guy. And all of that comes exactly what you said. It's, it's not because it's because they can't see the merit of Thrawn for Thrawn because he's not playing 
on the team by the same rules as everybody else. And if you're not going to be a team player like that, then you're no good to us uh, and our end goals, which is to, you know, amass more power, like you said. So absolutely, there are, it, this is not a good system. So would you say that they're suffering from Thrawn derangement syndrome? I I think that's absolutely what they're suffering from because they want to get rid of this guy regardless of the fact that he just keeps winning. Well, I mean, that's so even, much even winning. Above, I'm tired of winning. <laughs> no, but but like all all of the stuff that Thrawn is doing is he prevents a civil war. He's keeping enemies out. Yep. He's just he just lacks the polish that everybody wants him to have sort of thing and he's not a controllable entity yes and so it really annoys them and it gets back to again i don't want to be in the position because he's still a bad guy i don't want to defend thrawn thrawn's not a good person but like it's it's one of these things where it's like it i mean zahn has taken something here and i I think what he has created over the the original two Thrawn books and now this trilogy as it goes along, I struggle to think of another author who's written for a different franchise or anything like that, or even for this franchise, who has put such of his own stamp on everything by having the story structured like this in such a way that I can even go in here and you mentioned, you know, the political intrigue and everything. Jinxus is essentially a phantom menace that nobody knows about who's pulling the strings behind the scene. And I desperately want to know more about, yep. and I'm just waiting for that veil to fall. He's literally veiled. Mm-hmm. I want to know everything about this guy because he's, he's familiar while being different. He he has such a a sidious flair to him that it's it's kind of fascinating. Yeah, I I think that's one of the things that makes him a good villain um, is that he is playing off the ideas of him being like a Palpatine-like character Um, Mm -hmm. and being somebody who has plans within plans within plans. I mean, obviously, Yiv the Benevolent was a part of his plan, but he knew that it wasn't really going to work it was just going to be the first destabilizing movement so he's working in movements like this is the this is the second movement in that and who knows what the third movement is going to be right um but i think us not quite knowing exactly who he is as a villain um makes it really interesting and, and makes me want to know more um because he's familiar and yet is he really like Palpatine or is this, is that just a veil that'll be unveiled later on? And he, he has some ripples and, and nuances that Palpatine doesn't have, you know, like, so I I think that's the kind of thing that's, that's been great is like you were talking about earlier. You could strip the star Warsiness from this and it could be a great sci-fi novel, but at the same time, Thrawn has layered in those kind of rhyming elements still that help you, feel comfortable right like you kind of feel Mm -hmm. like you understand this guy and yet at the same time there's an air of mystery there that's still yet to be uncovered and it leaves me like you said it just leaves me wanting to know more and i I, you know 
in the way that they are looking to disrupt the ascendancy, I thought was fascinating because you were talking about how the, the Chiss ascendancy is not a good thing. And one of the ways in which we see that here is that the big plan is Haplif is going to use the family's system and this kind of like feudal meritocracy type system against itself. And so the continual politics of everything, he's going to, he's going to just throw that little bit of a wrench in there that hopefully will, will create basically a civil war. Almost um, World War I-like, you know, that we, if we move this one piece, mm-hmm. right, then all of these dominoes will fall because of the way in which these, these tribes are all set up against one another and working against each other. But I, I think in all reality, this tribalism also shows us, you know, when everything is politics, nothing is true. And it's hard to tell what is true then. And Haplif is using that against the Chiss. And I think it's beautiful. I agree. I, I thought that the plan was uh, was so incredibly nuanced. And it, it was interesting. I thought that the memories interludes that Zahn puts in there were incredibly clever because had the book been structured in such a way that these were not set aside as quasi flashbacks, if we had instead put these through as the you know first third of the story, it, everything would have been a snail's pace. Mm-hmm. And so Zahn taking hapless plan and having these interludes so that we can take a breath reset our brains and get just a little bit of information given to us without it being expositiony winds up working to great advantage for this plan because the plan when you finally see what they're doing there's no question about well why would they fall for like he's given you these little bite-sized nuggets it zon is a very cinematic writer he understands that you need scenes yep in order to process the information. And I, I think it just, it really, it really helps that, that plan of hapless mm-hmm. go from convoluted to complex and complex is better than convoluted. You know, like right. everything makes sense when we get to that point. Well, and, and on top of that, I mean, like you're talking about hapless plan and, and those interlude seeds, which I thought were really great additions to the book. Like you said, they kind of break things up, but they also help lay the foundation for exactly the way in which he's working out this plan, which is he's playing on the emotions of these young chiss who are off on this wandering year. And by playing on their emotions, it shows how he's going to continue to play on people's emotional states to get them thinking emotionally and not logically at all. And therefore being able to manipulate them. Because when you make somebody react emotionally and not logically, you're bound to make a mistake. And that's one of the things that makes this, and and that's what makes him and this whole section like Jinxus and and his plans an incredible foil for Thrawn and his logic, right? Is that we're working on all of these characters who begin to not think logically about things, not not put anything through any kind of testing or understanding. They're just thinking with their basest emotions of like greed and 
quote unquote love or you know self-preservation or desire for more power and when you do that uh, you are at your basis instincts and that's where we're most dangerous when we're not thinking above anything but base instinct and mm-hmm. you, when you get somebody being emotional it's easy to take advantage of them then and uh, i think you know again this is one of the things where when you look at like this idea of tribalism and emotionalism it's maybe one of the most topical things that i've just ever seen and in a book recently, and it's done really well, I think, in, in to kind of shine a mirror as the best sci-fi really does, you know, as the best Star Wars has done, right? To shine a mirror on... And what's great about this is I can read into it what's going on today, right? But I can also see the historicity of this that Zahn is also pulling from. Uh, throughout all, you know, many different times to where this has been used to great effect. Yeah, and that's why I find it so interesting that basically the parallel, not parallel, but the, I don't know, the reflexive, I, I don't know. Basically, Thrawn goes from being the, the, the logical uh, poison pill to all of this emotional planning and setting people against each other and playing on their greed and everything like that to working for somebody who is essentially Jinxus, who does these exact things. And I find that interesting because maybe what we'll find out, and I'm legitimately curious, maybe what we'll find out is that Jinxus's mistake winds up being that he doesn't enlist Thrawn. If he had found some way to leverage Thrawn the way that the Emperor does, mm-hmm. but the the Emperor is able to leverage Thrawn because Thrawn does have a loyalty to the Ascendancy he, that he recognizes. And so he works in Sidious's employ for his own ulterior motives. Jinxus is working to destroy the Ascendancy, so maybe that's the one reason he couldn't get Thrawn to work for him, why he doesn't bother trying to get Thrawn to work for him. Because as we will see, is anybody who has Thrawn working for them has a tremendous advantage in every conceivable fashion. And it's it's interesting um, just to see him go from essentially... Now, it's not a one-to-one, obviously. But if we picture the Ascendancy as the Republic, he's working against Sidious's machinations, Jinx's machinations here, right? Who's the Sidious of this analogy? And then we flop it over and he works for the Empire. And that winds up being the, you know, he, he's basically working in reverse. Like it, it's, it's, inter- it's just, yeah. I just think it's really interesting. And I think it, that can't, you know, obviously it's not accidental. Zahn is having some fun with that. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that's a great way to kind of see the story is that Thrawn in his going to what they call lesser space and, you know, ending up working for the Emperor, ends up working for the very type of character that, you know, we're th- most likely he's going to have brought down by the end of the series, but also is maybe the same character who ends, type of character that gets him and excommunicated. You know, mm-hmm. uh, so I, I think that is kind of absolutely fascinating. And, you know, 
it it does show the danger. And, you know, Hapliff says wonderfully in this quote, he says, if anything, this insane family setup of yours makes it all the easier. All that ambition and infighting and suspicion are perfect for my kind of operation. And, mm-hmm. and, and to, you know, we didn't really talk about how in, in Hapliff's plan, but his species is one to which allows him to be able to read the emotional state of somebody by touching them. Right. And that allows him to then be able to manipulate them all the better, which, you know, if you're going to be a master manipulator, especially of people's emotions, being able to know what their emotional state is in response to what you're doing makes all the difference. And it's, it's kind of brilliant. You know, like he is, it's almost like he's, um, he's tapping into, uh, each person's internal feed and it allows him then to, to be able to use that to, to his full advantage. Um, You know, in, in many ways, basically he's, he's a betazoid, right? who just has to use touch and, and, and that allows him then to use his powers for evil instead of good. And, 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 and so I, I really love, um, again, we see Jinxus using, um, something like that to his full advantage, you know? Uh, so I, it's great. I mean, everybody, everybody we encounter in a, in a way is a manipulator Mm -hmm. and the only people who are not manipulators that we run across, uh, Thalius, Thalius, Mm -hmm is not a manipulator. She cares about Cherie. She doesn't want anything to happen to her. Oddly enough, uh, Samacro, Samacro, Samarak, whatever, uh, the mid-captain, he's not a manipulator. And that's what's so interesting about him is it would, if he were different, he would be more apt to mm-hmm. work against Thrawn from the inside. Um, I think Lakinda lacks the manipulative side of things. She, I think Lakinda is one of those characters where she wants to hate Thrawn, but can't find a way to, you know, she's, she's very much stuck in that zone, but everybody's a manipulator. And what I think is interesting to look at from that vantage point is Haplif needs touch to get to that point. Mm -hmm. Otherwise he's lost. That's why the rancher Lacfro can overcome him one person that he can't touch, it becomes a mystery to him that he can't plan right. for. Right. Whereas Thrawn can just observe at a mm-hmm. distance. And then we have this, you know, we have the ascendancy doing all of its things. And then we have Jinxus mm-hmm. who sees from a different level. And so we have these concentric circles of manipulation. Haplif, I think is the, when I read the name or say the name Haplif, I think of Hapless. He doesn't realize that he's kind of fumbling around here. He thinks he's more clever than he is. And that's why I think that that sort of like concentric circle thing works so well is you have the hapless one, then you have Thrawn, who's the competent one, and then you have Jinxus, who's working above Thrawn. And accounting for him as it were well and and that's something that i think is really interesting here too uh, and i'm glad that you bring it up because 
Jinxus doesn't know about Thrawn until this book, and he's told by Quilly or Quilly or you know the the navigator Quarly, um, who yeah. remind who tells him you need to watch out for this dude. This dude has a bit the ability to basically bring you down, and he's like, oh, okay, I'll. And by the end of this book, he's like, oh no, I'm going to have to put this guy into my yeah. calculations. Um, and I, I think that's really fascinating to see. Um, and I like it. I like it a lot that, that you know, uh, many times Thrawn has been underestimated, and I think Jinxus even underestimated him. And in fact, in, in, in some ways, he's kind of underestimated the Chiss, um, and yet, at the same time, he doesn't, he, he thinks he, this is the thing, like, he thinks he knows enough to be able to overcome any weaknesses he might have. He might have. And to me, that's fascinating, because is that the chink in his armor to which he he's overconfident? Because there's the thing. One of the things that makes Thrawn really interesting is he's willing to admit when he doesn't know something. Jinxus does mm-hmm. not necessarily seem to be able to admit when he doesn't know something. And will that be his undoing? I'll, I'm going to venture to say that Jinxus, we're still not, I'm still not sure of what he does sure. and doesn't know. I think that's a good point. Right. Yeah. That, that, that's, that's the one X factor there in that calculation. But I think that um, the, sim- the simple fact is, and I, I, I know I hit on this earlier, but the simple fact is we're sitting here, we're talking about these characters. This is a Star Wars story. And I pause again because we haven't once talked about any of the things that typically go along with Star Wars, but it's still a Star Wars story. It still has these lessons, right? Because what what's the cardinal rule of, of Star Wars? You're supposed to be teaching the moral lesson at the core. It's not supposed to be a vanity piece. It's not supposed to be... Uh, you know, a postmodern deconstruction of anything. It's supposed to be, okay, you have a morality tale and you're going to tell it. What I think is interesting is just the fact that this is a morality tale without a good guy at the, at the center of it. And even, again, how would I feel about a Star Wars film where the main character isn't very present in it? Uh, like, but is always there at the same time. Like, I just, I, I just think it's, it, it's very interesting. And, and to go in with this, what I wonder is the thing that people always rebelled against with the prequels when they came out was, oh, it's too much politics. The politics, come on, stop with the politics. Well, this is, this is prequel era politics on steroids. This is insane amount of politics. And, with the same basic fundamental lesson that you can't trust anybody who's political. <laughs> like it's just an impossibility. And there, and then when you come across somebody who's bluntly honest and has no interest in the political game, the entire political system coalesces around itself. You're talking about these families are always at each other's throats. These families hate each other. These families are together because of this big, weird 
web of complex systems that they've put together to kind of bind them all together, tie them together, even though they don't really like each other. And then you bring in Thrawn and they, it's that common enemy thing, right? Don't ever get between two dogs that are fighting because then they're both going to bite you. They'll go back to fighting afterward, but Thrawn has, is now in the spot where he's in between the dogs. And it's, it's just interesting because he keeps getting out from between them. But we know that with this third book, something's coming. So I, I actually want to ask you, a spe- I know we don't like to speculate when we talk about you know books and, and movies and what's coming next and everything. Given everything we've gone through in this book, the only way I can see Thrawn truly being in trouble, quote unquote, is the fact that Thurfian is now the head of the myth. He's the patriarch of the myth. That's his big. He, you know, he can't get out from under that. Do you think it's as simple as Thurfian flexing? Because it seems to me that Thurfian is now in a situation where he can't move against Thrawn as freely as he would wish being the patriarch. It's almost as if he's now been given a poison chalice at the end of this book. Mm-hmm. So where do you see it going? Like, yeah, what what zaniness can Thrawn possibly get drawn into that gets him kicked out after he's been through everything we've seen in this book? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, you were talking about all of these things that have been happening in the story. And, and, you know, one of the things that Thrawn throws in at the end is Lacfro when he's having com- his confrontation with Haplift talking about how he's wrong about how family is what's important and what he doesn't understand is that these are not just tribes these are families and that means friendship and loyalty and support and communication and in the end, communication and true communication between peoples becomes the key. And that's even what breaks Thrawn through to um, getting people on his side that are not a part of his family who thought he was playing this game and who got told, look, Thrawn doesn't understand politics at all. He is hapless when it comes to politics. And therefore, what he's saying to you is just the truth of the matter. And part of that is, and what, one of the things I think is interesting is to watch this idea of like true communication is the only way to overcome tribalism that could devolve this into a really bad system. But there is something different about family where you're all part of something together, right? And you're all linked by something that is more than just a name, you know, they they say, and it's it's interesting, the same Star Trek, I was reading a Star Trek book and doing a literary treks on it here on the network uh, soon. And that same idea of family came up in that book and how, like, this idea in the end, blood is thicker than water. And there is something that is intangible and ineffable that comes with that. Um, and therefore... That's a, just another layer that I think Zahn adds on this that's going to be really fascinating to see how this goes. Because like you said, 
with Thurfinn being made the leader of the myth, it does seem like a poison chalice basically for Thrawn that he was now going to possibly have the power to get rid of Thrawn even in a in a in a way that makes him see himself and the myth seem more like the heroes but Thrawn like the villain i would just love to talk with timothy zahn and get to know what his extended family was like <laughs> because your your statement about blood thicker than water and everything um, the concept of how the ascendancy as a family relates to itself in terms of like the large extended family sure. sort of situation is it's not unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I would love to just to find out if Mr. Zahn had um, awkward Christmases uh, the way that, that yeah. I was or whatever holiday you want to insert there. Because there is that idea, especially with a very large family, an extended family, that you do go for a while under sure. power of the idea that, oh, there, no, there's something greater bonding us together. But eventually those bonds wear thin. And what I'm going to be interested to see is this is called Thrawn Ascendancy. I still wonder what the ascendancy mm-hmm. looks like at the end of all yeah. of this. Yeah. Because they've Great already question. dropped hints. There there have been nine ruling families. There were 10. There's been as few as one mm-hmm. in the past or three. What's coming mm-hmm. with that? Because the, there's no way the ascendancy comes out of this unscathed. That's and I think it would be point, a, yeah. a wonderfully ironic twist to have a book series with the word ascendancy in it that features the downfall of a system. No, I think that's a, and it does definitely lead into a really interesting place. I I think that's the thing that makes this so fascinating as a series is that in many ways, it does seem like we are kind of in that, the prequel zone for the Ascendancy. And like you said, they're they're kind of eventual downfall. And part of that seems to be because they are. Somebody is so hell bent on getting rid of the very thing that would make them last longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that is that resistance to change. Yeah. Um, in the worst possible way. Um, to new ways of thinking. Uh, it reminds me of in Star Trek where Bones is like, uh, new ideas, our fr- fresh ideas must be tolerant or something like that. It's it just... Oh, no. Th- it, I, I don't want to be that go, guy. Go, go ahead, because I'm getting it wrong. So go, please, just correct it's, me. It's, it's Star Trek Three. it's yes, Kirk, when they yes. see the Excelsior, and Scotty yes. says, I, and if my grandmother had wheels, she'd be a Thank wagon. You. No, no, Mr. Scott. Young minds, fresh ideas. Be exactly. That's a sorry. No, no. I do. I I hate being that. I'm guy. glad you I were there I because I was just sounding I like an idiot. So, um, no, you weren't. You weren't. Yeah. You were sounding like a normal person yeah. who doesn't memorize one of the lesser <laughs> Star Trek movies. Well, so. I personally love Star Trek, but that's a whole other discussion for another time. Um, I love parts of it. I I think 
I, but again, I, I think that's what's really interesting here. And, and I, I think that's one of the places as we kind of get to, to rating this book, I'm really interested then to see where you end up uh, with greater good. This is easily a solid four. Um, if I'm rating it as a Star Wars fan, strictly a Star Wars fan, it's probably closer to a five because it's if a Star Wars fan came to me, especially one of longstanding or anybody who has even been with the series since, say, Rebels, and they said, should I read Thrawn Ascendancy, great or good? I'd be, yes, right now. Go out. Buy it. Get it. Get the darn book. Four solid stars means that this is a book I can even recommend not to everyone because not everybody likes science fiction for some reason, but this is a book I would, I what's, what's really mind bending about it is with the exception of a few things like the concept of the Skywalkers and stuff like that. This is just a good science fiction book. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I think you can even come into this. You don't even need to read the first book. So even by the rules of sequels that I have this, this mm -hmm. cockamamie idea in my head that it's like, well, you should be able to jump into a movie without having seen the first one and, you know, like Terminator 2 or The Empire Strikes Back or something like that. You could jump into this. You don't need – it's better if you read the first one, but you don't need to. And so I, I don't know. I might be talking myself up into an even higher rating, but I'm going to stick right now for with a, a solid four. With it, with a little green up arrow with it. It's understandable. Um, you know, I, I'd say for me, I guess, you know, I don't necessarily think in all those categories as just somebody who read this book and, and I think it's phenomenal and I'm going to give it a five. Um, it's, it's just a great book. So, and I, I, you know, and, and part of that is because, um, like you said, this is not just a good Star Wars book, I think it's a good sci-fi book, and therefore be for it to be able to transcend from tie-in fiction to just good sci-fi fiction, I think it deserves to be rated as a five. You know what? You're absolutely right. You don't hear that often when I'm talking to Matt. It's everybody. true. It's true. I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna clip that and just replay it over and over again. You should play it while you're falling asleep. You'll have the most pleasant <laughs> dreams in the world. Uh, I just went in and updated my Goodreads rating to five stars because you are you are gosh darn right. You are absolutely right. I I just sat there and said, you don't even need to read the first book. And this is a great book, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Go ahead and read the book. It's fine. It, yeah. It, I, I could I could recommend this to anybody who's willing to just wants to read a good book. And as a testament to that, you know, the, the little tidbit I shared with you, I basically read like 350 pages in a day. And I'm not the world's fastest reader by any stretch. This is true. Tore through this book because I just enjoyed it so much. So, yeah, yeah, I know. I know, <laughs> trust me, I know I'm not a fast reader. <laughs> I only say that because uh, we we did push this back uh, a week for you. But I, your life yes, is super busy. Yes, You're a yes, dad, we and, and uh, we we're always just thankful that you make the time to come on. And honestly, I think you know. We, I, I remember us talking about whether we. We, uh, you would be on to cover this one and you're like, you know what? It's Thrawn. I need to be there. And and so I'm glad that you were because it makes for the expansiveness of the discussion we were able to have tonight and, and the type of discussions. Mm -hmm. This is what you want from a good Star Wars book, right? And, and yeah. so this is what has made the Thrawn series for me personally. 
some of the best stuff that's come out of this new canon, um, whether it's been the books that he created while he's on the Empire side or, you know, now this. I've just, I've personally loved every single one of them. So I'm super excited to see what's going to happen in this third book um, and, 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 you know, where we go with the character. But, um, you know, John, we do a little thing here on the 602 Club, um, you know, where we recommend something to everybody and so i'm really yeah. interested to see what uh you you know would like to recommend to everybody this week and you really think i'm not in flop sweats trying to figure out because i forget every gosh darn time i come on here you think uh, I'm not? no i think you are um i you just know, like putting you in I, that position it's really fun i um, just so you gotta give you a heads up before we start <laughs> recording but uh in all honesty what i'm gonna throw out there and it's it, it's actually it's something on amazon prime uh right now I wasn't nuts for it. I'm going to qualify it as I wasn't nuts for it, but other people might enjoy it more than I did. Uh, there is a documentary called In Search of the Last Action Heroes. Ooh. It's an amusing retrospective documentary with interviews, uh, for, you know, with everybody from Eric Roberts to, to Zach Penn to, uh, you know, different uh, actors and actresses and you know Cynthia Rothrock is in there and, and stuff like that basically talking about the evolution of the action movie but with a very special focus on the 80s and while I felt it was a little indulgent and maybe a little over long I think that probably there are plenty of action movie fans that will look on it with kinder eyes than I did so since it is included in Amazon Prime right now I would say you know if you're a fan of action movies, you know, it's a good thing to have on, you know, just, you know, while you're, you're sort of doing the dishes or, or something like that, uh, which is how I watch it, you know, just sort of like doing stuff around the house, watching it, I, you know, it's a good time in search of the last action heroes. Nice. That does sound like fun. Um, and, uh, definitely something I might even check out there. Uh, you know, I'm going to recommend, I, I really enjoyed, um, getting a chance to revisit a movie. Uh, and I, I, I often enjoy being able to do that, especially if it's, you know, in an upgraded format. And uh, getting to do that with Indiana Jones uh, was fantastic. I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, just came out in 4K along with the set. And man, you know, Indiana Jones is just so damn perfect. Uh, especially Raiders of the Lost Ark. It is just a, a phenomenal film, uh, and it looks gorgeous. Uh, the the it's it, it, and if even if you already have the series, it was worth the upgrade. I think just for the way it looks. Um, you know, Indiana Jones is a movie that is so special to me. Anyway, just especially Raiders with the way that it changed my life in the same way Star Wars did with what I thought of for action film heroes, you know, um, and, uh, I wanted to be Indiana Jones who didn't. So, um, yeah, it, it's, I just highly recommend picking up this set. Um, I can't wait to watch the rest of them, but it, I mean, Raiders was just a phenomenal experience again. And I know uh, a friend of ours has also, uh, he had gotten to see it in a theater because it was playing in the theater. So if it's playing in the theater mm -hmm. in your area, go see it on the big screen. Like I'm devastated. It is not in my area. I looked. I just uh, I would 
I would do just about most things to go see Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, on the big screen. So I had the good fortune to see it on the big screen when it came out for its 30th anniversary. Uh, I saw it in the theater when I was a kid, and then I saw it for the 30th anniversary. I can only imagine how much better the digital print looks now that it's in 4K. Oh, so man. I would... I would love to see it just for that because there's one thing, there's one specific shot from the Blu-ray transfer where something weird happens. I don't point it out to people because I don't want to ruin their viewing experience, but there is a very specific shot in the beginning that absolutely drives me nuts from something happened in the transfer <laughs> process. And it, it, it drives me batty. Like I have to just look away from the screen. Like I'm like, okay, here it comes. Look away. Okay. Now we're back sort of thing. So yeah, you know, it's weird. It happens. But, uh, yeah. you know, if people do want to uh, catch up with you, John, see, you know, of course, what else you've got going on besides, you know, uh, guessing on the 602 Club uh, from your guest suite, where can people find you? Well, you know, I actually do everything just so I can earn this spot here on the 602 Club. But you can find me out there as Kessel Junkie on your social network of choice, K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E. You can also find me over on the Nerd Party Network, where I co-host House Lights, which is a series where we look at uh, the works of directors one career at a time from beginning to pseudo finish. I mean, if they're still around and making films, it's up to this point in time, as it were. And you can also find me co-hosting a Star Wars-focused show called Aggressive Negotiations with one Mr. Matthew Rushing. Which is a blast. I hope you'll check that out. I love doing that over there on the Nerd Party with you. Um, of course, you could find me over on the Nerd Party as well. A retired show because we finished but Owl Post with Drake Kaufman where we talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series. Uh, social media, hit me up with Matt Rushing 2 and any of those social media platforms. You'll find me there. I'd, I'd love to have a conversation with you. Uh, you can also find me here on the network. Um, not only uh, have uh, John and I been on the 602 Club a lot, but we are actually going to have a real surprise uh, resurgence of Snyder Cuts. We, we've got a fun episode that's going to be coming out of that soon. Uh, we found something that we could talk about uh, there, so we're excited to do that. Uh, and, of course, you can also find me doing Larry Treks, as I mentioned earlier, talking about Star Trek books, as well uh, as The Orb, where I talk about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. But thank you, of course, as always, so much for joining us. And may the Force be with you. Thank you.